Florida's housing crisis sends protesters into the streets around the state. This is the Florida Roundup from WLRN Public Media in Miami and WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville. I'm Melissa Ross. Tom Hudson is out this week. Well, this hour, skyrocketing housing costs are sparking calls for state leaders to do something. Then later, the youngest plaintiff in a lawsuit over the state's parental rights and education law says his high school is preventing him from speaking out. Plus, Florida Senator Rick Scott defends his plan to raise taxes on 50 percent of Americans as he calls for the president to resign. You can join the conversation at 305-995-1800 here on the Florida Roundup. Your phone calls coming up right after the news. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com. Welcome to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. My co-host Tom Hudson is off this week. Well, many parts of Florida have simply become too expensive to live. Across the state, protesters are calling for relief from skyrocketing rents and home prices, too. Earlier this month, domestic workers across South Florida gathered for a march through downtown Miami on International Workers' Day to protest those high rents. The protesters say the housing affordability crisis is pricing them right out of their neighborhoods. It's impossible for our people to afford that. Of Our workers and our renters are in a really bad moment of crisis, and we need more support. As just one example, a report from Rent.com puts a one-bedroom apartment in Miami at $2,000. $744 per month. That's up 21% from last year. Rents in other cities around Florida nearly that high. Now, at the same time, the State Department of Children and Families is no longer taking applications for a federally funded rental and utility assistance program for low income and unemployed people. The department launched the Our Florida program last year to help people behind on rent or utility bills. Applications were accepted through Thursday of this week and then stopped. We'll go to your calls on the state's housing crisis in a few minutes here on the Florida Roundup. How are high rents affecting you and your family? Are you having trouble making the rent? Where do you live? Tell us your stories around the state. 305-995-1800 or tweet us at Florida Roundup. But first... News this week that a pair of investment firms tied to Goldman Sachs has bought up an entire rental home community in Brevard County, the whole community. Now, the firm spent $45 million for 87 single-family homes in the Cypress Bay neighborhood in the city of Palm Bay. Palm Bay Mayor Rob Medina joins us now with more about this. Mayor Medina, good to have you on the Florida Roundup. So good afternoon, and thanks for having us. Thanks for reaching out to our city. Sure. So what's your reaction to this news? Uh, these investment firms have bought up an entire neighborhood of your town, 87 single-family homes. 
So as you know, VR Horton, uh, the developer, developed this uh, community as rental home. Uh, that is the east side of Cypress Bay. That was phase one. And as you're probably aware, uh, that $45 million uh, price averages out, if you do the math, just about over 500000 each home. Now, in that, that's a long-term investment in our community. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, this has got to be a long-term investment. So, of course, that's free market uh, enterprise. That whole community is uh, pretty much an upscale community, so I'm sure they'll they'll protect that investment. From my perspective, do you have do you uh, have concerns, having, though, Mayor, about uh, how this might price some people out of the rental market? What about that? So this will actually affect the the rental market, but in the city of Palm Bay, rental properties are in high demand. Uh, we to have additional rental options is really beneficial to our city and our community. Uh, Part of that is our inventory, right? The city of Palm Bay has thousands of new single-family homes that are currently in, uh, you know, in the the manufacturing process, and uh, there's no signs of that slowing down. So we are increasing that uh, as well. Um, If you're asking about affordable housing as part of the equation, is that your question? Right. I mean, when uh, investor firms buy up properties, typically the rents go up and people have a hard time getting into properties. Well, in that community itself, they, they catered. D.R. Horton made that uh, more of an upscale. But we are identifying issues like that. If you're asking me more about what the city is, is uh, doing for affordable housing, just recently we assigned $5 million dollars. Uh, for affordable housing this past uh, council meeting. So those are efforts that that we've uh, not taken lightly. We understand the uh, affordable housing issue uh, within our community, and we are taking action. We also uh, assigned some funding to Volunteers of America uh, in their project, their affordable housing uh, apartment complex project. So, yes, ma'am, we have identified that as well. Well, thanks for your time. He's Rob Medina, mayor of Palm Bay in Brevard County. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely, man. Thank you for reaching out. And let's cast a wider lens now all around the state as we welcome Ann Ray. She's the Florida Housing Data Clearinghouse Manager at the Schimberg Center for Housing Studies at the University of Florida. Ann, good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we just heard from the Palm Bay mayor uh, about an entire community being bought up by investor-owned interests uh, uh, affiliated with Goldman Sachs. That's one of the reasons, isn't it, that's driving the cost of high rents in the state, but not the only one? What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, we came into this era that includes both larger, large corporation investment in housing and also, of course, the pandemic. Florida came into that situation with an existing shortage of affordable housing, and in particular, affordable rental housing. So when we look back at 2019, the last year where we have full, um, where we have full data, um, even coming into the pandemic and these kind of new purchases, 
we already had over half of home of renters and almost a quarter of homeowners in the state paying more than 30% of their income for housing. And 30% is kind of a rule of thumb that's used to identify housing that people can afford. If people are paying more than that, especially if they have lower incomes, then they might have to skimp on transportation, on food, on health care. Um, so we were coming into this era already with a shortage of affordable housing. We have a lot of investor-owned um, single-family homes for rent in Florida, um, and that's both the large investment firms, but also a lot of smaller local investors. And when that housing is owned and for rent, particularly when it's the sort of modest starter-type homes, then they're unavailable for people to buy. And that kind of chokes up the whole system, right? People who might have moved into home ownership are renting, and that places more pressure on our rental market as well. Now, we heard the mayor say this is the free enterprise system at work. Uh, what are your thoughts about that uh, as uh, capital moves into the state to try to grab up these homes? They become rentals. And as you said, they then are not available for people to buy. Traditionally, uh, the economic ladder in America to move up is to build equity in a home. Yeah, so I think there's a couple things we can do. And one is to build our home buying um, and first time home ownership programs to provide an alternative for people. And so in Florida, we have our state housing trust fund dollars, our Sadowski dollars that go to local and county governments that allow them to provide home ownership opportunities, including supporting the construction of affordable for sale homes in their communities. Um, we also now have um, recovery funds that are coming into communities the coronavirus recovery funds that they can use to create affordable home ownership opportunities. So that's down payment assistance, that's building affordable homes. And I also think we need to use those resources to beef up our affordable rental housing stock because, you know, many of the folks you were talking about financially, it makes sense for them to rent. And also affordable rental housing really is a home ownership program. It's a way to move, you know, it's a way to allow people to save up and become homeowners. You know, as far as investors owning homes, uh, one thing that I think would be helpful would be transparency around who um, um, who owns homes. You know, people, if they're renting homes, should know who their landlord is. And I think that'd be a helpful step. And so there are two things happening here. One is you're talking about uh, home ownership is one piece of the puzzle. And then also these shockingly high rents, as we heard earlier in the show, people protesting on International Workers' Day saying they simply can't afford to live in large parts of Miami anymore. What are you seeing in terms of people being displaced by high rents? Their income is certainly not rising fast enough to keep pace with what they're having to pay now for even a standard one-bedroom apartment in the state in most major metros. Yeah, well, as I said, we were sort of coming into this era with an existing shortage of affordable housing. So a gap between what wages for many jobs pay and what rents actually cost. Having said that, I've never seen rent increases reported like I have over the last year. Rents have gone up statewide, according to apartment list, about 28%. That's over $350 a month on average. And in some areas, which might have... Um, not had quite as strong a rental markets in Southwest Florida, we're seeing increases of more than 40%. So the problem, you know, is both larger than it has been in the past and also wider spread. Um, up until now, as you reported, we've had these rental assistance programs, which have, while not, you know, 
wouldn't be possible to take care of the entire problem really has helped people stay in their homes, um, even with the economic shocks that have pl taken place during the pandemic. So eviction rates, while still way too high, have actually not, you know, we're not reaching historic rates until recently. Now, with the combination of this rising, these continuing rising rents, and also having expended a lot of our um, emergency rental funds, and you mentioned that the state is closing applications to its program, I'm really concerned about what happens next. And so I think we need to look mm -hmm. at keeping that emergency rental infra assistance infrastructure and looking at the recovery funds that we have now and funds coming into communities to see whether we can keep that going. We're speaking with Ann Ray, the Florida Housing Data Clearinghouse Manager at the Schimberg Center for Housing Studies at UF. Is the rent too high for you? Are you having trouble making rent in your community in Florida? We're talking about the housing affordability crisis on the show today. Give us a call, 305-995-1800, or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Tell us if this is a struggle for you. Beatrice is calling from Miami Beach. Hi, Beatrice. Go ahead. Hey, good afternoon. Um, yeah, I was just calling to, I guess, add to the experiences of, you know, renters like myself. Um, I'm a teacher. My biweekly paycheck is $1,700. My rent currently is $1,400. My apartment mm -hmm. was just purchased by a buyer from Arizona, out of state. Like, you know, the same story has been happening to a lot of us. And his plan is to raise the rent to $2,100. And it's just, you know, and I'm just like one of the many people where it's, I'm no longer, yeah, I can't afford to live in my city. Yeah, what are you going to do, Beatrice? Well, I've been looking to move out of South Florida, um, but then even towns like, for example, let's say Cape Coral, right, where you would think it would be more affordable, even places like that, the rents are still, or would be pretty much like, I would have to spend like one paycheck just to be able to live. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous. And it's also just, it's upsetting that we don't have a law in place to restrict, you know, the percentage by which, like, your rent could go up year to year. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens to, to South Florida, to the residents here. Well, Beatrice, I'm so sorry you're going through that, and thanks yeah. for your call. And certainly, Ann Ray, there are many, many thousands of people out there just like Beatrice. What about her question? Is there more that state lawmakers could be doing to get a handle on this? They will be meeting in special session next week to deal with the state's property insurance crisis, kind of a related issue with in terms of housing. But there are calls for lawmakers to address the housing affordability crisis, too. Yeah. And, you know, of course, property insurance is part of that affordability crisis um, because homeowners need to pay that. And as property insurance rates skyrocket, that's a part of somebody's housing cost, just like their mortgages, um, just like their taxes are. Um, as far as the state legislature, I mean, I don't think they have any plans for the session to look at rental housing again. They did pass, um, they did fund the Sadowski State Housing Trust Fund dollars at a higher level than they've done in past years, although a certain amount of that was um, was set off to be used for homeownership rather than rental housing. Um, you know, I'm, I just have enormous sympathy for what Beatrice and so many people are going through as they face these really 
shocking rent increases. And she's right. It's not like there's another safe haven in the state to go to where maybe in previous um, increases in housing costs there have been. Um, on the other hand, I, th I think it also points up the importance of building our supply of long-term affordable rental housing. So we have various state and federal programs that are public-private um, partnerships where housing is developed and in exchange for public subsidy, both the rent and the income of the households is restricted. Um, and one thing that does is it keeps people from having to deal with these big shocks of high rent increases from year to year because over the long term, a period of 30 years or 50 years, the rents are restricted in those properties. So we need a push to both build and expand our supply of affordable rental housing, and also to make sure that we're preserving the stock that's there, that's not flipped into market rate housing, and extend those affordability requirements. Robert in Orlando. Hey, Robert, thanks for holding. Go ahead. Okay, maybe we lost Robert, but lots of other folks uh, on hold waiting to share their stories. Oh, Robert, are uh, you still with here. us? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for, for listening to me. You know, it seems a little bit contrite. Um, all of a sudden, after the pandemic, there was a lot of saving. And right after that, um, now all the prices are up. The food's up. The gas is up. The rents are up. It's, and, the, and, and, and someone said the quiet part out loud today on Squawk Box this morning. They said people don't want to go back to work. They're lazy. Well, once the prices go up and they run out of savings, they'll have to go back to work. And I'm like, did he really just say the quiet part out loud? Are we all just because we have, we're taking a little bit of respite, a little bit of a break? We got used to it after the, uh, the pandemic and we had a little savings where we didn't have to go back to work. All of a sudden, prices are up everywhere. Is this, I mean, it sounds a little bit conspiratorial, like a conspiracy theory, but it just seems to me like the, the people that have the money, a Chevron who's making out their, their stocks are up 40 percent this year today. The people that have the money are just resentful that the working class is just finally getting a break, has a little bit of savings and doesn't want to go back to work. So, hey, let's raise the prices on everybody. Let's raise the rent. Well, you, the, you know, I, I, the only thing I would say to that, Robert, though, is unemployment is down quite a bit. I mean, people have gone back to work for the most part. But I, I, I appreciate your call, Robert. And um uh, you know, Ann Ray, in the minute or so we have left before the break, as he pointed out, prices are up everywhere due to global inflation that's caused by it's an after effect of the pandemic and supply chain issues. But getting getting back to the housing piece uh, as we go to break, what are your thoughts about really the pain and the anger and the frustration that people are feeling out there? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you mentioned the domestic workers protest. I I feel like we're seeing more attention to affordable housing as a political issue in local political races, for example, in Florida, you know, certainly over the past three or four years, but especially over the past few months than we have in a long time. And, you know, a, a lot of that is really oriented towards solutions. There are more counties, for instance, that are looking at putting together a county housing trust fund. And there's a lot of momentum behind that kind of efforts. But I mean, I want to acknowledge that the problem is enormous. You have hundreds of thousands of people in the state of Florida who are renting, who are paying more than they can afford for their housing. People are doubling up um, unwillingly. Schools are identifying students as homeless and trying to keep them in the classroom as they're moving around, couch surfing, staying with family. Um, so I, you know, you can see it out there that people are really frustrated and they're scared. I mean, the, a home is at the base of security. And when that's threatened, it's enormously disruptive to someone's life. 
your calls on the Florida Roundup in just a few minutes as we discuss the state's housing affordability crisis. 305-995-1800. Lots of tweets coming in, too. As Michael tweets the show, I was forced out of my home and into an old trailer with no insulation. 305-995-1800. What's your housing story? Give us a call. We'll be right back. This is the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family-owned and operated since 1936, and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits. Always be celebrating. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. My co-host Tom Hudson is off this week. Lots of calls coming in from all over the state as we talk about the housing affordability crisis in Florida. Let's go to Deborah in Clearwater. Hi, Deborah. Go ahead. What are your thoughts? All right, let's try Mike in Stewart, Florida. Hello, Mike. Hey there. Thanks for taking the call and really appreciate your focus on this critical issue here for so many communities across the state. Um, I am honored to actually serve on my local city commission here in the city of Stewart in Martin County, and uh, I've done so since 2018. And I ran on a affordable housing platform, and it's a huge issue in our community. Our, our residents are demanding more affordable housing, especially as we see our rental rates and home prices skyrocket. I'm hoping that maybe you can, um, you and your guests can help explain to folks uh, the steps that the state legislature has taken over the last several years to really erode local the local ability of uh, city council and uh, county commissions to um, to encourage or incentivize uh, or require in some cases affordable units for new developments. I'll give you an example specifically in 2019. Uh, HB 7103 signed into law, which um, required that local governments fully offset uh, the, the uh, opportunity cost of uh, those affordable units and new developments. So if you could just touch on how the state mm. <laughs> has made it really difficult for us and eroded a lot of our, uh, our tools here. Michael and Stuart, thanks so much for your uh, advocacy and for your insights. Let's go back now to Ann Ray with the Schimberg Center for Housing Studies at UF. Ann, is the state legislature making it more difficult for local communities to deal with this problem? Yeah, so, the, so the legislation that the caller was discussing um, does provide some additional restrictions on using inclusionary zoning or inclusionary housing, which means requiring a certain percentage of units within new developments to be affordable. My understanding is that there are ways around it um, and there are ways to continue to do inclusionary zoning, but certainly it's become more difficult. Hmm. You know, Sammy, we need to look Sammy. at and, and we need to look at all the, mm-hmm. the tools that we have in place. And again, I, I think having um, having local and, and state housing trust fund money coming in allows um, local government to be more active in some ways than it was before. But the regulatory piece is harder. Thanks for that. Sammy in St. Pete. Hi, Sammy. What say you? Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. In Sarasota, 
the city of Sarasota, the city commissioners just voted last month to um, prevent homeless people from sitting on the sidewalk or lying on the sidewalk. Well, now we are in a situation where the working poor, the middle class, they're all being pushed out of the affordability of uh, rental and, and home ownership. But they are placing us in a position where we're going to have greater populations of homeless people because they cannot afford these increases uh, in rent. And why is it that the government, the city governments, are attacking people that find themselves in these situations, and uh, but allowing capitalism to just abuse us to no end? Sammy, thanks. Okay, uh, and 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 we are getting many many tweets about this as well. Uh, people expressing their frustration. Uh, here's one from a listener: I've seen LLCs buying houses in bulk, then turning them into rentals, not to sell but for rent only. You have to make three times the amount in rent to qualify. The rent is eighteen hundred a month. Who makes thirty three dollars an hour in Florida? The crisis is real. They say so. You mentioned this already, and I believe a few minutes ago, but how concerned are you that the housing crisis will increase the homeless population in Florida? I mean, I'm very concerned, especially given the expiration of emergency rental assistance. Again, we we had this issue coming into the pandemic. And one thing the pandemic actually showed us in our emergency rental assistance programs, which used federal money, um, both by the state and local, some larger local and county governments. And some of those programs are still open and people should continue to seek those out. But that showed that, again, it wasn't perfect. Some people tried to access assistance and couldn't. Some landlords didn't want to take it. Um, but still, if you're able to provide that kind of emergency assistance, um, many people were able to be kept in their homes and landlords were able to continue operating their properties without losing months and months and months of rent. Why can't we do that um, even when, you know, even if we're not in that kind of emergency or even if we do have high employment rates? Because as you noted, you really need a high wage in order to afford rental housing in the state of Florida. Half our jobs pay $17 an hour or less, and that's not enough to afford an apartment in the state of Florida anymore. So I'd like to see that infrastructure and that assistance continue. Okay, Eric in Fort Lauderdale. Hi, Eric. Hello. Um, I was wondering about uh, simply about zoning and how in Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, as in most of the state and really the U.S., uh, we still have these vast areas of single-family suburban sprawl. And I noticed that whenever we talk about the few areas, for example, in Fort Lauderdale, right around downtown where you can build multifamily, uh, it's often referred to as luxury, and it is very expensive, um, if that's not simply the luxury, the luxury of scarcity, because in the rest of our community, we are still living in this world where we think we can have just acre after acre of single-family home. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, and what about those kinds of factors? And, and then also the short-term rental market, how that might be distorting the picture, Airbnb and other companies like that. Yeah, so they're all pieces of a puzzle, right? So um, definitely if you only build the most expensive type of housing product, right, which is a large single family home on a large plot of land, 
that's going to drive the cost up a lot. Um, right now, however, because you know materials are expensive, labor is expensive, land is expensive, um, building more dense and more diverse housing is absolutely necessary to address the housing crisis. It's not sufficient. We need to also build affordability again through these kinds of public-private partnerships. Um, through different kinds of affordable housing programs, through housing vouchers for people who can't afford rent, whose wages don't allow them to afford rent. We need to build that into a system that also allows us to build different types of housing. You know, Florida built, we built a lot of kind of modest duplexes in the state till about the 19, mid 1980s, and we just stopped. Um, and we don't really have a starter rental product anymore. The, co the color was right. The new um, housing that's built, new multifamily housing is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly luxury homes. So we need to develop this starter rental and starter home ownership product again, the way we used to. Um, as far as Airbnb and the different kind of short-term rentals, we're actually taking a look at that now. The research around the country, it's, it's all pretty new since this is kind of a new phenomenon, but has shown that in neighborhoods and areas that have a predominance of short-term rentals, um, that does tend to drive up rents, of course, because it provides an alternative use for those units. It also drives up home prices because now owning a home, there's another profitable way to use that um, besides living in the home yourself. Um, so, you know, there's lots of competing use for land and places to live in Florida. There's Airbnb, there's short-term rentals, there's the older vacation condos, there's hotels. Um, because we have, because of our weather, because of our tourism industry, we constantly have this tension between um, using up land for housing versus using it for people who are coming to visit the state. And no quick resolution in sight, but very good to get your expertise. Thank you, Anne. Anne Ray. She's the Florida Housing Data Clearinghouse Manager at the Schimberg Center for Housing Studies at University of Florida. Well, in March, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the controversial Parental Rights and Education Bill into law. It prohibits teachers from speaking about LGBTQ issues with students of a certain age group. Xander Moritz, an advocate for LGBTQ rights, led a walkout at his high school protesting the bill. Since the protest, he has also become the youngest public plaintiff in a federal lawsuit against DeSantis in an effort to strike down the measure before it goes into effect later this year. Oh, and graduation is around the corner. Moritz is set to be his high school's commencement speaker. But he says he was told not to discuss his activism at the graduation ceremony. Xander Moritz joins us now on the Florida Roundup. Xander, good to be with you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So you were protesting the bill and made it plain to your high school that at your commencement speech you were going to discuss your activism. Then what happened? So that did not even happen. I was actually called in before my speech had ever been discussed and before any draft had ever been released. So this conversation where I was told not to discuss my activism was the very first time that my speech was ever discussed. Uh, and that's kind of what caught me off guard. Um, being class president, I'm called into the office a lot to handle different problems and have different meetings. So there was nothing that I thought was unusual about the request until I was in the room. Um, the tone of the conversation was different than it has ever been. It felt like there were 100 other people in the room uh, listening to what was going on. And the way that we cautiously navigated 
what to me are very fundamental topics was upsetting and it was mildly dehumanizing. And it was, it was really just uncomfortable because I do believe that my principal as a human being uh, would support me and is a good person. But I believe that the don't say gay law is so powerful and effective in its oppression that it forces administrators in school systems to become vehicles of oppression against their students. And the meeting essentially covered the idea that my passions are valid and who I am is great, but it's not appropriate for school setting and it is too controversial to be discussed. So while I was supposed to be in fifth period, I was told that my human rights are too controversial for me to talk about. The Sarasota County School District's issued a statement about this. They said that graduation should not be a platform for personal political statements. Should a student vary from this expectation during graduation, it may be necessary to take appropriate action. That's their statement. So, Xander, do you still plan to use your commencement speech to talk about these issues? As I mentioned, you are the youngest plaintiff in a massive federal lawsuit challenging the parental rights and education law, what critics have been calling the don't say gay bill or law. What are you going to do at graduation? Before I talk about that, I just want to clarify one thing from their statement, and that's to any LGBTQ students uh, or any LGBTQ people who might be listening right now, your existence is not political. And that's what upset me so much about that statement is that who I am and the rights that I have to exist and then speak about who I am should not be politically controversial and they should not be political at all. But in terms of what's going to happen at graduation, there are two requirements that will be met. The first is that I will defend my human rights and my First Amendment rights. And the second is that I will not allow a ceremony and a celebration that my friends have worked for four years to earn um, will be ruined. So I'm going to ensure that that ceremony is protected and that we are able to get through graduation in an enjoyable fashion. But I'm also not And let me just say that you're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Please continue. Yeah, um, and I'm going to ensure that while I am focused on ensuring that my human rights exist, I'm also going to focus on the fact that I'm aware that this could have incredibly adverse effects for my peers and their families, because everyone deserves to just on graduation day, enjoy and celebrate their graduation. That's all this has been about from the get-go. So I'm going to balance those two requirements and you're going to see how I do that on May 22nd. I see. Now you've called Sarasota where you grew up and went to high school, a hateful environment to grow up in. You said since this whole thing has begun, you've received death threats. Uh, People have screamed at your parents at their place of work. Do you plan to leave Florida after you graduate high school? What And what's next for you? I think when I talk about my experiences growing up in Sarasota, people like to point fingers and say that I'm being dramatic or that I'm being upset because I don't talk about them. But the goal was never to go like viral with this tweet. It was never to have an internet impact. It was just to get people to see and have those stickers. And that's just something that I wanted to get across is that me only talking about these issues now because people are asking those questions does not mean that that hasn't existed. And I know that for so many marginalized students and human beings in Sarasota, that this environment has not been a conducive one to loving yourself and to growing yourself. And so now I'm headed off to Harvard where I'm going to study government and really focus on those systems. I want to continue my community service and my advocacy there. And 
after those four years, we'll see what happens, but it is my intention right now to come back. I don't know if to Sarasota specifically, but I know that right now, Florida needs help and we need people who care and are experiencing the problems and then can create solutions for those problems. And there's just too much injustice here to ignore. You mentioned your tweet. We should note that you became uh, a a national story when a tweet about this went viral. Uh, Before we go to break, can I ask, you know, you're a high school senior about to graduate and go on to Harvard, as you said, and certainly have a bright future ahead of you. But what was it like to be at the center of a social media viral moment like that? It was scary. I've never, that was not the goal. I did not think that would happen. I just wanted a bunch of my high school connections in Florida to send that to their friends and to have everyone see it. So we could get our stickers out. Um, what happened was obviously a different result. And I'm I sorry. Was- and when you mean, what do you, what do you mean by that stickers? Uh, so the, what the point of the tweet actually was is to promote the fact that my initiative, the Social Equity and Education Initiative, partnered with Project Pride to create 10,000 Say Gay stickers that we are right now actively shipping to seniors across the state so that they can wear them on their graduation gowns. I wanted to do this as a symbol that, yes, seniors are leaving the school system, but they are not leaving the fight and they are not leaving their peers behind. And that was the original goal. Um, obviously the messaging, uh, resonated with people and it went, it exploded in a way that I was not ready for. I'll admit because I'm not a social media person and it was, it was, it was scary and it was overwhelming, but I think the important thing now is to use that as a platform to get the messaging across that was happening here in Florida is unacceptable. And that we're aware of that. The citizens of Florida are not going to allow their politicians to continue to steamroll over human rights. As I mentioned, the lawsuit that you're a part of has been filed. Uh, we'll continue to follow the path of that complaint. And best wishes at your graduation ceremony. And thank you so much for joining the Florida Roundup. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for continuing to share the story. Graduating senior in Sarasota, Xander Moritz. A quick break, but we have a lot more to come here on the show. After the break, we're going to talk about the escalating feud between President Joe Biden and Florida Senator Rick Scott. Did you see some of that? That's coming up in just a few minutes here on the Florida Roundup. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. My co-host Tom Hudson is off this week. Well, this week, the feud between President Joe Biden and Florida Senator Rick Scott escalated. Biden told reporters that the Florida Republicans' policy ideas were bad for the country. And he said, I think the man has a problem. For his part, Senator Rick Scott called for Biden to resign. Matt Dixon is a reporter for Politico, and he's going to join us in just a moment as we try to get him back on the Zoom. But uh, as we wait for that, did you see the 11-point plan Senator Scott put forth a while back? He says it's a plan to rescue America. Now, 
let's talk about this plan for a minute while we may, we wait for Matt to connect. Uh, the part of it that's gotten the most attention is the part that President Biden leaped on, along with other Democrats, uh, accusing Senator Scott of wanting to raise taxes on 50 percent of Americans. Senator Rick Scott says that that's not true and that his plan has been mischaracterized. It's 305-995-1800 as we talk about this. And it's been really fascinating to watch the White House go after Senator Scott. At the same time, Senator Scott says that the White House initially didn't return his calls about the plight of a Cuban activist he's been trying to help. Let's go now to Matt Dixon, reporter for Politico, with a little insight into this. Hi, Matt. Hey, how are you? Good to talk to you. So let's begin, if we could, by explaining a little bit more what's in Senator Rick Scott's 11-point plan called Rescue America. Why is the Biden White House going after Scott so hard on this? Well, what's interesting is both sort of the Biden White House and Republicans are to a degree. There's a provision in the uh, uh, Senator Scott's 11-point plan that's kind of been the focus of all this. And excuse me, verbatim, it says, all Americans should pay some income tax to have skin in the game, even a small amount. Currently, over half of Americans pay no income tax. That's a direct quote from from Senator Scott's plan, and it's being construed by by Democrats as he wants to increase taxes on essentially every American that doesn't currently pay taxes, which is a lot. And, and similarly, uh, Senate Minority Leader mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell has distanced himself from this, which has sparked sort of an inner party feud on on the right. So, so Senator Scott is is kind of getting fire from both sides because of the tax provision in this 11-point plan, which is, has really caused him some, some messaging tr- problems, and, and, and including with the White House. Scott went on offense, though. He called President Joe Biden unfit and even said he should resign. And, what about uh, that? In, in politics, you always go on offense. So I think this is <laughs> going to be kind of going to kind of be mutually beneficial for both. And you're seeing it play out. Um, Democrats have very sort of strategically made Rick Scott a boogeyman because this tax provision, I think, is sort of easy to message going into the midterms to say, hey, look at the the guy who is running Rick, Rick Scott's running the national organization that, that coordinates Republican Senate campaigns across the country. So Joe Biden, you know, it's, it's not a good atmosphere for Democrats. They now think they can they can kind of latch onto this message. Look at this. Uh, we know one of your top Republican senators wants to raise taxes. So I think that's what Biden's going to sort of focus on to to sort of, you know, boost Democrats messaging and, and hopefully try to turn around what has been a, a tough midterm cycle for them so far. And on the other side, I mean, Rick Scott probably has presidential aspirations. That's long been the rumor. He can now sort of, you know, take swings at a Democrat who's not very popular, a Democrat in the White House. He's uh, he started running ads in other parts of the country, you know, far away from Florida. So that's only sort of spurred mm-hmm. the idea that he's going to use this feud to to, to you know, really elevate himself. Now, speaking of the midterms, uh, earlier this week, Florida Democrats said they'll spend $15 million to help mobilize their party's voters and unify the party. They call this a shift to blue campaign. Will this have any effect in a, in a state that's increasingly trending red? What do you think? Well- if they can, uh, the interesting part about this plan, their, their shift to blue plan, it's it's what's called a coordinated plan in, in sort of campaign terms. And essentially what it means is campaigns up and down the ballot are all going to contribute into this fund to make this $15 million plan 
for sort of voter outreach, uh, additional field offices across the, the state, things like that, but they currently don't have the money. So basically the $15 million that you've seen reported is what they think this plan will cost. They still have to raise that money and the chairman of the party, Manny Diaz, uh, acknowledged that to, to my colleague at Politico, Gary Finout, in an interview earlier this week. So they have this mm -hmm. plan, it's, it's aspirational and they might hit their number, but right now they don't actually have the money to fund it. Uh, if they do, it, it, you know, it, it could make a difference. Republicans have made huge, huge gains in voter registration in the state. Democrats have, have, have sort of a lead they once had has been eroding for a very long time on the registration front. So they really do need to stop that kind of bleeding. But right now we need to kind of see this plan come together and them to find the money first. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. And we're speaking with Matt Dixon, reporter for Politico. By the way, Matt, you're writing a book about Florida politics, aren't you? I am. I am. It's uh, This was a big swing state, and it feels kind of center-right. I'm, I'm writing a book about the, the process from, from going to a big purple state to what appears to be a slightly red state and kind of how we got here. Well, we look forward to reading that when it comes out. Now, let's uh, a few more political news and notes from the week. Florida Secretary of State Laurel Lee who led Florida through the 2020 elections, is stepping down. What's next for her and uh, who might fill that role? Uh, the, whoever oversees elections in this state is sure to be a lightning rod for criticism in this political environment. Yeah, it's amazing. Florida's top election job is coming open in the middle of the 2022 midterm. So it's a, an interesting twist we didn't expect. But she's expected to run for Congress in a, 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 a new congressional seat that's kind of outside of the Tampa area where she's originally from. And there's no solid word on who might be next. But the early speculation and kind of chatter right away was a state representative actually from the Jacksonville area, Cord Bird. There's a, he's been at least the first name sort of put through the rumor mill. He's a close ally of, of Governor Rick Scott. He actually voted against the House's congressional maps in support of, of Ron DeSantis's preferred congressional maps, which sort of got him in good graces with the governor. And there's some speculation that he could be picked for that position. Carl is calling from Clearwater. Hi, Carl. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for calling. Yeah, I left a comment uh, regarding uh, Governor, or, I'm sorry, Senator Scott. When he was governor in the state of Florida, um, he pushed through legislation to employ SunPass for the motorists of Florida, which uh, caused a burden to a lot of taxpayers just to travel. Uh, prior to that, he was embroiled in some sort of a, 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 a possible or potential criminal activity defrauding the federal government for Medicaid dollars since he was the uh, owner of some big uh, health care facilities around the country. Uh, and now he's bashing Joe Biden, um, knowing good and well that he's part owner of the SunPass program uh, that, that he pushed through legislation, which is a clear conflict of interest in my appearance. And uh, I don't see that he should even be a senator. Uh, along with all these other Republicans that are playing cat and mouse with technicalities and finding loopholes to uh, to play games with, with our constitutional rights. Uh, every one of the U.S. Supreme Court justices that basically perjured themselves in the Senate before confirmation all claimed that they weren't going to do anything with uh, 
Roe versus Wade, and they're all recanting, and nobody's calling them on it. And here's Rick Scott with his eye on the presidential prize, and he's not interested in making anybody's life easier. He's certainly going to try and push through legislation. All right, Carl. Uh, we're almost out of time. Okay, uh, a lot in that call. Matt Dixon, uh, your final thoughts. Yeah, there, there was a, whole, a lot there. Um, I, I think the, I mean, the, some of the SunPass stuff is is uh, was kind of in the weeds from many, many legislative sessions ago. But by and large, on the 11-point plan and the tax provision specifically, I, I do think this is just the beginning of it. Things are kind of getting personal between Rick Scott and Joe Biden. I think that's kind of by design. Both see the others as a convenient political heel, and I, I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. Do you think Rick Scott has uh, any any purchase uh, in the in the Republican primary for president? Uh, at this moment, I, I would say no, just because it's been you know Trump and DeSantis. Uh, but there's a long, long ways off, and a lot of uh, political speculators have gone wrong betting against Rick Scott over the years. Um, he he does have the ability to self finance, probably through you know maybe at least up to Iowa or through an early state or two. I would say the the atmospherics for Rick Scott in a presidential primary right now aren't aren't great. But I certainly wouldn't put them at zero because he's uh, he's overcome a lot of political headwinds in the past when he wasn't expected to win. And then finally, uh, as you mentioned, bo- it, it, it plays to both the president and Rick Scott to escalate this feud. But uh, I would encourage people to read the plan, Matt, uh, on the website yep. and judge for themselves what Senator Rick Scott is saying we should do in the United States. Yeah, and, and specifically to the tax piece that's getting all the attention. The, the, the language uh, on the website is, is very clear. The initial plan was very clear that he wanted, quote, everyone to have, quote, skin in the game, which which was very clearly interpreted as, you know, people, everyone should pay taxes, even those who are not now. Um, the messaging since then from him and his team in several interviews has kind of been. Has changed. Uh, yeah. yeah, we are it, focused yeah. on getting people back to work. And that's that's kind of what we meant. But, yeah, the, the plan itself is, th- is fairly straightforward. Check it out. Matt Dixon of Politico. Thank you. And that's our show, The Florida Roundup, produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Tway are producers. Catherine Hobbs is associate producer. WLRN's director of radio operations, technical director, is Peter Meritz, with engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Josh Torres. Richard Ives answers the phones. Theme music by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. I'm Melissa Ross. Have a great weekend. We'll be back next Friday. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com.